Well, if you've been with us the past uh, couple of weeks, you know that we've been in a series called God's Good Design, and the subtitle's been for sexuality. And so we've been teaching on uh, what does the Bible teach about God's good design for sex, and what is God's good design for human sexuality. And so uh, there is a tremendous amount of disagreement on these subjects, not only in culture, but within the walls of the church. We looked at that last week as well. And so if it's your first Sunday here, uh, let me just share this. You dropped in on a barn burner, all right? And so if it feels like you're on the tail end of a conversation, it's because you are. Today's the final message in this little three-week series. We'll take a break for Labor Day, and then we'll start a new fall series the week after that. But if you're just dropping in today for the first time, uh, I could not encourage you enough to go back and listen to the first two messages we taught uh, in this little series so you can kind of understand how we got here today. And here's the big idea that the series has been filtered through. Uh, is that God has a good design for everything, and that includes sex and sexuality. And we believe this, that when people follow God's good design, whether it's for work or relationships or sexuality or whatever it is, then human flourishing will take place. But when people abandon God's good design, uh, then brokenness is the end result of that. Uh, in the middle of the series last week, someone asked me, they said, hey, these are teachings mostly for Christians. And I said, yeah, my understanding of my job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And the primary way that happens is teaching and equipping believers on Sunday morning. And they said, well, we understand that, but what about if someone's not yet a Christian? What if they're here and they're exploring that? And here's what I would say. You can do whatever you want. This is God's covenant language for people living in a covenant relationship. What does it look like to honor God in that covenant relationship? And so people outside of a covenant relationship can do whatever they want, but we still would hold to the truth that abandoning God's design leads to brokenness for everyone. So that's been the thesis of the series. And so let me refresh your memory of what we've taught so far. Uh, in week one, uh, we focused on God's good design for sex. And what we concluded is it's God's good gift to design to glorify God within the context of covenant marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, in week two, uh, we dealt with God's design for sexuality. And specifically last week, we talked about homosexuality, and here's why. It's the one area there's the most questions. It's the one area there's a lot of pushback and saying, no, no, this is a part of God's design as well. No one's making that argument for fornication or pornography or bestiality or adultery or anything like that, and so we get lots of questions about that, so we kind of talked through that. What we understood last week were there were some things that were uh, temporary, some ceremonial laws, like why they couldn't wear mixed linens or why they couldn't eat shellfish or some of those things, but that all was fulfilled in Christ, but then God's design for sexuality is a part of his moral law and transcends culture and covenant. We see it repeated in the New Testament and mirroring the Old Testament as well. And so let me invite you to turn again uh, to Romans chapter 1 for the third and final message in the series. And, and this morning our, our format's going to be a, a little different. We're going to teach in a format that's probably... Uh, closely related to the Ask Anything series we do every summer uh, where people submit questions and then we stand up and answer whatever questions get submitted. And so what we did as pastors this week, we just said, hey, after what we taught last week, what are some of the most common questions that we fielded over the years that, that if we don't teach through these, we probably have raised more questions on the subject than we've answered. So it's gonna be a little different in regards to format. And, and so here's the, the good news. If what we've taught the last two weeks hasn't offended you, uh, stay tuned, all right? Sounds fun, right? <laughs> Imagine being on this side of the pulpit. I asked three people this morning who saw the notes. I said, you want to teach this morning? I said, I'm totally good. That's all you, all right? So Romans chapter 1, we're going to pick up in that text again. It says, for although they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Uh, verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. And what's the activity of fools? Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so what, what he's saying here is they began to worship creation instead of the creator. And everything under the banner of creation, including sex, is what they began to worship, all right? Verse 24, so therefore, as a result of what they were doing, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature or creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. And then he begins to describe the activities that they were engaged in from an idolatry perspective, beginning in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with pasture for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And so he begins to talk about the entry point of idolatry. It often happens in the arena of sexuality, but then he says it, it doesn't stop there. Sin never stops where it is. So he begins to expand that in verse 28. And since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, so that was the penalty under the law, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them, right? So obviously a, a list there of all kinds of debauchery, all kinds of sexual immorality going on, all kinds of rampant immorality and sinful activity. And so when we begin to look at this idea of human sexuality, I just wrote out so many of the questions uh, that we've handled over the years, and so I'm just gonna dive right in here this morning, okay? Uh, first question is this. Should Christians attend a gay wedding ceremony? Who wrote these questions? Good night. Uh, so I've been asked that uh, over the years, the last several years, since that became a legal thing in our country. I've been asked that so, so many times. Hey, pastor, I don't know how to wrestle this. I want to be faithful to scripture, faithful to Jesus, but I want to love people well. And so how do I navigate all of that? So uh, here's my answer. I would counsel against it. Uh, when I share that answer, uh, here's usually the initial objection that people uh, push back with. They said, but Je didn't Jesus spend lots of time hanging out with people who, who weren't holy? And the answer is unequivocally, yes, absolutely. Uh, in the Gospels, we see Jesus dine with tax collectors and hang out with prostitutes. Uh, Jesus had no uh, problem being in the company of sinners. He recognized that there is no such thing as impact apart from contact. And we should be modeling that as well. And so based on that reason, shouldn't we conclude that as Christians, we should have no problem attending, supporting, celebrating a gay wedding uh, ceremony. So let me give you another perspective. Uh, we learned in week one that marriage is a God-given ordinance that speaks to more than just a love between two people, that the marriage ceremony itself points to the gospel. And we talked through that point by point how the marriage ceremony points to the gospel. The marriage ceremony itself is a picture of of Jesus united with his church. And in the scriptures, Jesus is presented 
as the groom, masculine. And in scriptures, the church, those who are saved, are called the bride of Christ, feminine. And so the the, uh, covenant marriage of a man and a woman points to a picture of Jesus and his church. And so the gender of the participants in marriage is important because of what it's pointing to and illustrating, which is Christ's union with his church. And so, therefore, if the ceremony uh, doesn't honor that, then they've redefined the covenant of marriage, and it's no longer an act of worship towards God, pointing people to the gospel. It's now an act of idolatry. And I can't in good conscience be a part of a celebration that redefines an institution that God has clearly defined as an act of worship, uh, and so I could not uh, support that. I would counsel people against that. And so here's what I want you to understand. A wedding ceremony is a worship service. It is a worship service. And so everything we do should point to Christ and what it's supposed to picture, which is the union of Christ and his church. Uh, Let me give you another perspective. Uh, When I perform a wedding ceremony, uh, I usually include the traditional wedding language that uh, sounds very familiar today. Does this sound familiar? Uh, We stand here today in the presence of God and these witnesses. You ever heard that before in a wedding? Uh, The reality is this, is what we're saying is we're witnesses. Uh, Back in the old days, and some of you may remember this, and this is not inappropriate to say this, uh, people used to ask, is there anyone here who would give reason that these two people should not be married? Just out of curiosity, how many of you, the pastor, the officiant, said that at your wedding? Anybody speak now, forever hold your peace. Anybody do that? Yeah, some of you are wincing, like, ah, you know. So here's why. The reason that we say you're here before God and these witnesses and the reason the pastor would say that is because the participants in the wedding are not spectators. What we're saying is, hey, I'm lending accountability. I'm giving approval to what's taking place. And so you're just not an innocent bystander. I'm here to witness that this is a God-honoring union. And so back in Romans chapter 1, Paul makes a fascinating summary statement. Uh, There in verse 32, look back at it. Here's what he says. He says, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, listen to this, but give approval to those who practice them. One translation says this, worse yet, they encourage others to do them. And so by me uh, being there at a uh, gay wedding ceremony, what I'm saying is I'm encouraging other people to do things by my tangible support of things that they, uh, Scripture says should not be done. You say, well, how do you know those are the things that should not be done? Go back to verse 26. Before he makes that summary statement, he lists all these things. And verse 26 says, women turned against the natural way to have sex and instead indulged in sex with each other. And the men, instead of having normal sexual relations with women, burned with lust for each other. And when I'm there supporting, celebrating, what I'm doing is saying, hey, These things that he said ought not be in verses 26 and 27, then I'm encouraging others to do that based on my participation. And verse 32 says, worse yet, they encouraged others to do these things. And so in good conscience, I couldn't do it. I counsel people against it. Some people disagree with me. Totally fine. You're allowed to be wrong. All right? Good night. Let's just go home. Amen. Does it get... Harder than that. So, so again, when, when people come to me for counsel, I walk them through. Here's what marriage is. Here's what a marriage ceremony is supposed to be. Here's what Roman 1 says. I can't uh, encourage others to do these things that God has condemned in verses 26 down through verse 29. So I, I could not do that. And th- then I want to give you biblical reasons why 
not just my opinion, because my opinion doesn't matter at all, okay? Second question, if the Bible says so little about homosexuality, why do Christians insist on talking about it so much, especially when Jesus never mentioned it? A couple weeks ago, I watched a little interview of some kind of a, a legislative meeting, I don't know if it's federal or state thing, and a guy got up, and a guy said this, he said, hey, he said, I'm, I'm gonna read to you now everything that Jesus said about homosexuality or about gay marriage, and he got up very dramatic, and he just stood there silently for like minutes. And at the end of it, he said, that's all. And you know, like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And so he's like, so it was very persuasive in the way he did it. The problem is this, is he wasn't accurate in what he was doing. And so uh, let me give you the answer. The reason uh, the Bible says comparatively little about homosexuality is because it was an uncontroversial sin among ancient Jews and Christians. This was such an uncontroversial sin in biblical times that the writers didn't spend a lot of time addressing something that everybody uh, was pretty clear what was taught and what was expected for those in a covenant relationship. There's no evidence in early Judaism, early Christianity, uh, that they tolerate anything, uh, any sexual activity outside of God's design. The Bible says a lot about idolatry and hypocrisy and economic injustice and pagan worship. Why? Because those were the common sins that were taking place in both the Old and the New Testament. The prophets didn't rail against uh, homosexual practice because, it's, uh, uh, because it was an obvious what the standard was and it was less frequently committed in the covenant community. And just as a side note, counting up the number of verses on any particular topic is not the best way to determine the seriousness of the sin involved. So it wasn't even a common sin. It wasn't something they said, hey, this is rampantly going on, and this is against God's design for sexuality, so we got to speak into this, we got to speak into this. It was so uncontroversial, both in Judaism and the early church, there just wasn't a huge need to address it. But it's not like the Bible is silent on the issue. Listen to this list. It's explicitly condemned in God's moral laws, a part of the Mosaic law in Leviticus. It is used in our base passage here as a vivid example of human rebellion against God and idolatry, right here in Romans chapter 1. It's listed among a host of serious sins in two different epistles, 1 Corinthians and 1 Timothy. It's one of the reasons, not the only, that God destroyed one of the cities in the Bible. And that's not even mentioning all the texts on marriage and Genesis and Proverbs and Song of Solomon and Malachi and Matthew and Ephesians. And so the Bible's witness is not isolated or obscure on this subject. But why didn't Jesus ever talk about it? That's a question I've had so many times. Jesus never said anything about it. Well, let me just let you in a little secret. Jesus also never said anything about bestiality. So we assume that he didn't say anything. He's okay with it. Jesus never said anything about pedophilia. So should we assume that anything that Jesus doesn't directly say, that then by his silence, he's totally uh, uh, approving what's taking place? Or of course we wouldn't make that argument, right? But to insist that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality actually isn't even accurate. Not only did he explicitly reaffirm the creation account of marriage between one woman and one man in a covenant, he did that in Matthew chapter 19. He did that again in Mark chapter 10. He also, in Mark chapter 7, condemned the sin of pornea. Now, pornea in the Greek is where we get our English word pornography, and the word pornea is a broad term encompassing all kinds of sexual sin. New Testament lexicon defines pornea as unlawful sexual intercourse, prostitution, unchastity, fornication. 
New Testament scholar James Edwards says this. He says, pornea can be found in Greek literature with reference to a variety of illicit sexual practices, including adultery, fornication, prostitution, and homosexuality. In the Old Testament, it occurs for any sexual practice outside of marriage between a man and a woman that is prohibited by the Torah or the law or the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. And so Jesus condemns pornea in Mark chapter 7, and that includes everything outside of God's design. Jesus reaffirms the creation account of marriage between a man and a woman in Matthew chapter 19 and again in Mark chapter 10. And listen to this closely, all right? When Jesus is defining marriage, what he's also doing is defining what it's not. And so when he defines marriage and reaffirms the creation account in the Gospels, what he's saying is this is the definition of marriage, and anything that's outside of that does not constitute the definition of marriage. And so Jesus always affirmed the abiding authority of the Old Testament. You see that in Matthew chapter 5. And this is incredibly important. It doesn't just apply to this, but it certainly applies to this. The words in black in your Bible are just as inspired as the words in red in your Bible. Did you know that? So it doesn't matter whether Jesus or Paul said it or Luke or some other writer. The Bible says this, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. That word inspired, it literally means in the Greek, God breathed. And so the words in black in your Bible are just as inspired as the words in red. And Jesus was not silent. And nor should we make an argument that anything Jesus was silent about, he automatically gave approval to. So this idea that Scripture silent is not true. The idea that Jesus didn't speak to this issue also is not true. Here's the third question. Good night. <laughs> it's getting harder. What about self-professing gay Christians? I've had that question so many times. I've got a person who says they're a Christian, but they're involved in a you know, homosexual lifestyle and those kind of things. So how do I wrestle with that pastor? And you know, how do I you know, sort that all out? So, all right. So first off, let me just say this. We should never use sin as a descriptor of our identity. Our identity is in Christ and what he has done, not in what we do, good or bad. Looking back at Romans chapter 1, would you use any of the other dishonorable passions that Paul lists here as a descriptor of your identity? Let me just illustrate this. Would you look at that list in Romans chapter 1 and verse 26 and 27? He's clear that homosexuality is outside of God's design. So take any of those other ones in verses 28 down through verse 31. Would you use any of those adjectives before the word Christian? Would you tell someone, I'm a gossiping Christian? Some of you are. Amen? I just want to say that right now. <laughs> uh, or, or I'm an unrighteous Christian. I'm an envious Christian. I mean, pull anything off there. I'm a disobedient to parents Christian. That one still is punishable by death, by the way. Write that down. No, you, you would never pick any adjective from Romans 1 and put that in front of your statement that you're a Christian because, number one, being a Christian is about what Christ has done, not what you do, good or bad, but you would never use sin as an adjective to, as a, uh, to describe the type of Christian you are. You wouldn't use anything else in Romans chapter 1 so you shouldn't use that one as well. Here's the big idea, all right? So if you're listening, say amen. Temptation befalls us, not defines us. Let me say that again. Temptation befalls us, not 
defines us. Now, why does temptation not define us? Here's why, and this is so important. Because it will not be a part of our new and final nature in heaven. It's a shortcoming of our old nature. And yes, on this side, temptation befalls me on this side of eternity. But my true identity is in Christ. My true citizenship is in heaven. And so the temptation that befalls me is only temporary. And my true identity in Christ and residency in heaven, temptation will no longer define me anymore. And so we shouldn't use that to define ourselves because it's not a part of our true identity that is revealed in heaven. But, but somehow... Between now and then, uh, we allow this idea that how we feel determines how we should think. Have you noticed that in culture? However a person feels, should, that should morally defend how you should think about anything. Well, here's an interesting thing. Uh, that is a teaching that's from the 19th century promoted by Sigmund Freud. That's where that, that first thought comes from, that, that how I think determines how I should feel uh, in my identity. But here's the reality. In a biblical worldview, we are soul-oriented creations, not sexually-oriented creatures. And that means we find our identity based on the fact that we're created in the image of God, not in our sexual habits or desires. So this idea that somehow my sexual orientation or activity defines my identity is not rooted in the Bible. We're defined as those created in the image of God. That's a 19th century creation of Sigmund Freud. So it's not even biblical to think about it that way. And here's why that's so important, because it leads to the natural questions about Christians who have same-sex attractions. And um, the conversations I've had with people over the years said, hey, this is a, a struggle of mine, and, and the, the, the angst they work through and wrestle through, uh, I, I just can't even describe to you the angst that goes on. So people have asked me over the years, uh, how can it be a sin if someone is born with homosexual desire or same-sex attraction. Pastor, how can that be sinful? Well, I'll give you a quick answer and then a more detailed answer, all right? Here's the quick answer. We're all born with desires that do not honor God. All of us. All of us. So, so how in the world could, could God create someone and give them a desire that's sinful? Listen, God created all of us that way, but aren't we made the image of God? Yes, we're made the image of God. We we have the ability to think and act out of a volitional will. We have moral reasoning. But spiritually, we've inherited Adam's nature, Romans 5 says. So spiritually, we're in the image of fallen Adam. That's why Christ comes as a new Adam, to redeem our old nature. So because of that, we're all born with desires that don't honor God. All of us. Now, there are different desires for different people, but the idea that, that somehow I'm born with a desire justifies that that desire is appropriate, that is totally contrary to Scripture. And your desires and capacities and temptations towards sin are going to be different than someone else, but just pick any other sin. Just say, hey, as long as I can remember, I've always had a problem with anger. Right, and you feel like, who are those people? Like, look around, it's the people with red hair. Amen? That's in the Bible, trust me, all right? And so would you go to someone who has these explosive outbursts of anger, and would you say, it's okay, God made you that way. You've got red hair. No. You would say, hey, even though that may be, you may have a capacity to, to sin in that way, more so than someone else might be, who has a more mild temperament you, you don't make peace with that temptation you wage war against it and so just take homosexuality and put it in any other 
kind of sin there. We're all born with sinful desires, but we don't make peace with them or let them define us. We wage war against any type of sin that's outside of God's design for us. And so, uh, but also when examining the Bible about same-sex attraction, it's important to distinguish between uh, homosexual behavior and inclinations or attractions. One is the difference between active sin and the passive condition of being tempted. Now, does the Bible clearly present homosexual uh, activity as sinful and outside of God's design? Clearly, we've taught that now for a couple weeks in a row. But the Bible never says it's a sin to be tempted. Now, is it a part of our sin nature that we have temptations that are outside of God's design for us? Yes. So being tempted in any way that's outside of God's design, whether it's sexuality or anger or relationships, fill in the blank, that's a part of our sin nature. But acting on that is participating in sinful activity. So let me just flip the script a little bit. It would be the equivalent of someone coming to me and saying, hey, I'm heterosexual and I've been in a marriage for five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, whatever the case is. And I'm really attracted to women who aren't my wife. Now, would I say you're sinning in that temptation? No. Would I say that's a part of your sin nature because adultery is outside of God's design for marriage? Yes. But I wouldn't look at a person and say, hey, totally fine. Don't worry about that. Don't wage war about that. Don't worry about thinking about that. Why? Because we should always wage war against temptation that's outside of God's design, whether it's heterosexual or homosexual or any other area of our lives. And so to be tempted by anything that's outside of God's design is the overflow of our sin nature. Now, there's been a lot of debate in the scientific community about the genes related to homosexuality. To my understanding, that's never been found, never been proven, never been verified. Uh, but the reality is this. But even if it were found, it only reinforces what I'm saying. That my whole physical body has been affected by sin in the fall. That at every level of my physical being, I, my, my, the whole creation that I am, listen, has been tainted by sin. And different people have different sins, different temptations, and all the above. We should be waging war against those. Now, let me give you one of the dangers of letting our natural desires determine the rightness of our activities. Now, let me, let me put this in layman's terms. When we let our natural desires determine the moral rightness of our activities, let me tell you how that phrase sounds in culture. Be true to yourself. You ever heard that? And think about this. You ever a person say, oh my goodness, I am so greedy. Would you tell them, be true to yourself? Oh, I have such a desire for this man or this woman at work who's not my spouse and they're married. Be true to yourself. Oh, I have a terrible, explosive temper. I just, be true to yourself. Those kids will be stronger because of it. Amen. Listen, Scripture, Scripture, Revelation is what defines the moral rightness, not our natural desires. So the question is not, what am I tempted with? The question is, what does the Bible speak about regarding this particular temptation? And how does the Bible equip me to break free from the temptation that Scripture promises? So let me just say it in this way. Sometimes we want the wrong things. Why? Because we have sinful natures. 
So if you're telling people, hey, be true to yourself, what you're telling people is just go ahead and indulge your sinful nature. What you're telling people is this, just follow your heart. Can I tell you something? Sometimes your heart wants things that aren't good for it. Did you know that? Listen, my kids love to eat Taco Bell every night for dinner. Right? Praise God we had it last night. I just want to confess that. I did not. I just want to say I did not eat at Taco Bell. I had Skyline. <laughs> it was right next to each other. So. But guess what? That may be what their heart desires, but it doesn't mean that it's good for them. And so when someone says, hey, I have a desire that's outside of God's design, whether it's homosexuality, heterosexuality, fill in the blank, it doesn't really matter. For you to say, be true to yourself is what you're really telling them is just indulge your sinful nature. And what's the thesis of this whole series? That departing from God's design in any area of life leads to brokenness and submitting to God's design leads to human flourishing. Sometimes, because our hearts are wicked, Jeremiah 17, we want the wrong things because we have a sinful nature and so sometimes we can't always control what we're tempted with or how we feel but we can control what we do with those feelings first peter chapter one and so our counsel for everyone no matter what type of sin you're battling fill in the blank is to resist temptation ephesians chapter six how do we do that by walking in the spirit spending time pursuing intimacy with jesus so as not to gratify the desires of the flesh galatians chapter five what does that mean the counsel is not grit your teeth and try harder. The counsel is not try really hard to avoid sin. That either results in shame because you can't do it or it results in pride because you think you are. And you're, it's all your human willpower. Listen, the answer for temptation is to pursue Jesus Christ intimately, walk in the Spirit, so as not, cause and effect in Galatians 5, so as not to fulfill the desires of the flesh. I gave this illustration several years ago. For most of my married life and our adult life, uh, Tosh and I, our yard has been a hayfield. Let's just call it what it is, all right? I've never been good at growing grass. Not this kind, the mowing kind. All right, I just want to say that. Never. My neighbor, house we lived at before, he had a lush lawn. Like you could go out there and do putting practice on it. And finally one day, and I was, listen, I was spending money on weed control, and I was spending money on aeration, I was overseeding stuff, and, and finally this one of his name was Sean, I said, Sean, I said, your yard looks great. He was like, yeah, your yard's struggling. I was like, Sean, I'm aware, I'm aware of that, right? And he said, Brad, he said, can I give you some advice? And he said, what you need to do is focus on growing grass. And I said, Sean, I'm trying. He said, no, no, no. He said, you're trying to avoid weeds. He said, you need to focus on growing grass. That's what I do. And I said, Sean, what's the difference? He said, because when your grass grows thick, it chokes out the presence of weeds. He said, you've got the whole thing backwards. Can I tell you this? That when you're trying to avoid sin, you're trying to avoid weeds. And what Galatians 5 is saying is, no, no, grow the grass thicker. Walk in the spirit so that, cause and effect, you don't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Next question, and this is the last one, and I'm not exaggerating. I could preach a whole sermon here on this last one. 
So despite all we've taught, this is what the Bible teaches last week on sex, or two weeks ago on sex, last week on sexuality, and this week all the hard questions we've walked through. And listen, there are more. We can answer more. Here's the last question I want to land the series with. Where has the church gotten it wrong in dealing with homosexuality? Let me work through this list, and it's, it's a long one. First area we've gotten it wrong is we focused on people's sins without first introducing them to Jesus. Listen, if you think the goal is to get people to stop practicing homosexual activity, can I, can I just let you in on a little secret? You can be heterosexual and still be in hell. Matter of fact, statistically speaking, about 3% of the population in the world identifies as homosexual. Let's just double that number. Say some folks are afraid of persecution globally. Let's just say that number. Let's just triple that number. Say it's 9%. That means by percentage alone, there's a 91% greater chance that a heterosexual is going to go to hell and a 91% greater chance that heterosexual sin is a problem in our church. That's just pure math. And so the problem is what we've said is we've pointed our bullhorn towards the world and have yelled at people for not holding to a biblical view of sex and sexuality and not having a Christian worldview when they don't know Christ. Why in the world would a person who doesn't know Christ hold to a Christian worldview on anything? And so the goal is to invite people to receive Jesus. And guess what? Once they do, then he'll empower them to wage war against their sin, which they could not do, left to their own willpower and the weakness of the flesh. Folks, the goal is to win people to Jesus Christ. Not to get them to agree with our positions on how Christianity fleshes out, because if they agree with your position or your politics and they still go to hell, you didn't win anything. Second place we've gotten it wrong is in the area of our selective moral outrage. This past summer, we addressed our own denominational scandal, call it what it is, about covering up sexual abuse in our churches. Can I just tell you this? Some of those same pulpits that were preaching hard and angry and harsh against homosexuality were the same pulpits covering up sexual abuse in their churches, and God's equally grieved by all of it. And churches will preach loud and angry on homosexuality and be totally silent about pornography or adultery or people hooking up that aren't married and living together. I want you to hear me clearly, church. God's standard is not heterosexuality. God's standard is holiness. And I'll just tell you this. Over the years, I've had some people want to join the church they were in a same-sex relationship, and I said, hey, you can't join the church. Here's why. Here's what the Bible teaches. Here's where we are. We love you. We're glad you're here. Keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. But can I just tell you this? I've had lots more conversations with heterosexual people who are living together and pretending that they're married, fill in the blank, and I said, hey, you can't join the church either. Why? Because you're living in an open, unrepentant, habitual sexual sin by your own admission. And so the church has been guilty of selective moral outrage. I'm really grieved by these sins. The church should speak the truth on that. And the church has been silent on everything else outside of that. The church has been wrong. Covering up sexual abuse and preaching its homosexuality is an offense to the gospel. 
And so the church has been guilty of selective moral outrage. And here's another area that we've gotten it wrong. Some teachers, pastors, Christians have encouraged Christians to shun or even disown those who are living in a same-sex relationship. Now, would I attend a gay wedding? I already told you I would not. That's how I counsel people. Gave the scripture why. Couldn't do it. Violet McConnell, all the above. But I would never disown a child or friend or encourage anyone else to do who, in fact, was in a same-sex relationship. Let me ask you a question. Do you know anybody who's been shunned or scorned or shamed into the kingdom of God? The answer is no, you don't. The Bible says this, that it was the kindness of God that led us to repentance. And guess what? The same thing will lead other people to repentance as well. And under that banner of love, am I sharing what the Bible teaches about sexuality? Yes, I am, but not before I introduce someone to Jesus Christ. Yes, we're calling to repentance of sin, all sin, not just sexual sin, all sin, greed, pride, gossip, fill in the blank. But some people have said, well, I'm going to shun them and shame them. In reality, we've withheld biblical hospitality. But let me be clear, church, we're almost done. Thank God, all right? If the church is not a place where people who are struggling with sexual sins can be accepted as people made in the image of God, then they'll find a community that will be accepting of their sin. Let me repeat that. If the church is not a place where people who are struggling with sexual sins can be accepted as people made in the image of God, yes, we're counseling, yes, we're preaching the truth, we're not watering down the scripture, but if you don't love them, where they are and meet them where they are and introduce them to Christ, they'll find a community that will be accepting of their sin. And, and listen, if the church is not a hospital for broken people, let's all go home. Let's all go home. And something very clear, whatever authority I have after 12 and a half years as a pastor, let me just make this statement. Sinners of all stripes are welcome at Liberty Heights Church. Listen, if you're struggling with sin and you want to own it, you want, you want to wage war against it, we're here to fight with you. Sinners of all stripes are welcome at Liberty Heights Church. We're inviting everyone, no matter what sin you're struggling with, take sexuality out of it, fill in the blank, whatever it is. If you're waging war against sin, listen, we'll lock arms with you and walk through the fire with you. You say, why is that? Because here's what I believe. I believe the gospel can change anyone. First Corinthians chapter 6, long list of sins. Homosexuality is one of those. You know what else is in that category? Thieves and cheats and greedy people and people who get drunk. Same list. Same list. You're going to be grieved by one, be grieved by all of it. And listen to how verse 11 ends that chapter. And such were some of you. You say, what happened? They found Jesus. They found Jesus. And not only did he forgive them of their sins, he empowered them to obey. Praise his name. The good news of the gospel is this. No matter what sin you're guilty of this morning, and we're all guilty of a bunch, right? God's grace is available for everyone 
who will repent and believe. Would you bow your heads this morning? If you're here this morning and you find yourself this morning in a battle with sin, could be sexual sin, could be heterosexual, could be homosexual, could be some kind of sin in regards to relationships, could be the sin of worshiping money and material things. Whatever it is, if you're here this morning, and you're in a battle with sin, then can I lovingly and gently and humbly call you to repentance this morning? Would you confess that, whatever it is? It doesn't matter what kind of, would you just confess that? And confess means to agree with God. Would you say, God, I'm not, I've not been following your plan for sex or sexuality. God, I've not been following your plan for marriage. God, I've not been following your plan for how to handle money and worship you. God, I've not been following your plan for relations. It doesn't matter, fill in the blank. Would you just confess that to the Lord and agree with him that you've been pursuing something outside of his design right now? Would you repent or say, Lord, I have a desire to turn away from that, whatever it is. And would you pray this right now with all the hope you can muster? Jesus, help me obey. Give me the grace I need to empower me to obey whatever it is. And would you just declare right now, Lord, your design is for my good. Your design is for my good. Father, we're grateful that even when we talk about challenging subjects, that God, we do so filled with hope. We still believe that Jesus came for the sick, not the well. We still believe that Jesus is seeking and saving the lost. We still believe that grace is available to anyone who will repent and believe. And so, Lord, we pray, thanks be to God for the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, thank you for not leaving us how you found us. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.